You are listening to a pre-release version of the Aspirin Regimen podcast. The final version will have voiceover by Lisa Chase Patterson and our theme song. This is used just to test. Thanks. Yep, I was born in um, in Manhattan, actually. Family was living in the Bronx, but my mom didn't want to have me in a hospital in the Bronx because she didn't want me to die. So... <laughs> I was born a couple of months premature, so back in those days, the survival rate wasn't like it is now. Um, but I was raised in the Bronx in the early 70s. I got to watch the beginnings of what would later become hip-hop, even though it didn't have a name, it didn't have the culture surrounding it, so to speak. It was just part of the landscape. Uh, I was a comic book head, so I started first with graffiti you know, drawing whatever character I see. Hulk, Spider-Man. Spider-Man was my favorite. Daredevil, X-Men. Then I moved on from that to b-boying because that was the next logical progression. I've seen people dancing. And uh, I remember a cat named Speedy that used to pop outside my grandmother's window. So I was like, man, I want to I pop. So I started popping and I started doing floor moves. Then I met these cats called the Floor Masters. And my man, uh, I met some cats like my man Eddie and Frankie and uh, my man Lenny. And those cats kind of taught me a little bit of the ropes, even though I kind of walked. Started b-boying, started getting pretty good at it. Um, eventually, uh, my mom had an unfortunate incident due to a doctor's malpractice. The same hospital I was born in in Manhattan, we sued them. And then we moved out of the Bronx to Long Island in the 80s. And that was pivotal. One, because I hated Long Island when I moved there. Huge culture shock from the Bronx to Long Island. And plus all my friends were back home in the Bronx. Um, But there I met a lot of other cool cats, like a cat named Brian and a cat named Trevor and all these other cats. And eventually I started b-boying out in Long Island. And uh, I quickly became like the focal point because there wasn't really a lot of cats b-boying out in Long Island at the time. One of the young cats that came and sought me out to be down with my crew was a little kid named Trevor Smith and his little brother Paul. Trevor Smith would go on later to be an MC named MC Chiloski, and then he would go on to be a rapper that you might know now as Busta Rhymes. And our cross-time rivals, cross-time rivals as B-Boys, was Mr. Pop, because Mr. Wave was already taken. Mr. Pop, who eventually became KBMC and eventually became Charlie Brown. So we started, you know, B-Boy Cruise, and eventually I started DJing, um, learning from cats like DJ Will and Hig. Big Hig was my DJ partner. Hig would actually be the older brother of the future Charlie Brown. So eventually we started a crew, and it became me and Brown, and then me, Brown, and Buster, we became the Bum Rush Crew. Um, some of the cats around the way, like my boy Miguel and my boy Gil and my boy Albie. Eventually, we started doing little bullcrap shows. We did a show opening for Alicia that sang Two Turned On, a freestyle artist. Eventually, free, uh, getting down on the, on the mic and on the turntables led to a chance encounter with a future group that would be named Public Enemy. Uh, Spectrum City was having a, a contest looking for MCs and DJs. Right below their little demo studio was Eric Sadler's Kassad Studios. They had a little uh, rehearsal studio because they, they used to be like funksters and shit. And Eric was a good friend of Hig. So Eric called Hig and said, yo, you know, tell your brother and his boys to come out. They're having a battle. Maybe they get down. So, of course, you know, Brown hit me up, but I was in the Bronx visiting family. I got back to a thousand voicemail messages because back in those days there were no cell phones, so it was all about the little, um, you know, the little cassette uh, answer machines. And he bought my answer machine, wondering where I was at. I called him back. His mom picked us up because we didn't have no whips. We were high school kids. She drove me and him and my boy Daquan up to the to the studio. Buster was in Brooklyn visiting family, so he didn't come. So we thought we were going to battle as a crew. And I couldn't wait to battle with Spectrum because I thought they were kind of whack. You know, at least they're DJs. They had two DJs, KG, Wizard KG, and, and Mellow D. 
Wizard KG is Key Shockley, and Melo D was the person you know as Terminator X. So I was dying to battle him. I'm like, yo, I'm going to destroy these dudes. And I wasn't shy about saying that. So we were on this line to China. There was a lot of people there. We were the youngest dudes, and I was the only non-black dude in the line. So I was talking the most shit. And um, we didn't battle as a crew. So it ended up that the MCs went, and they rhymed to a pre-made beat by one of the beats they picked. And then the DJs had to DJ on their equipment with their needles and their records. The record I was given was Funky President. And on two SL1300 MK2s and a Mixman mixer. So I got on that shit. I had to stand on a milk crate because I was so short. I had to stand on the milk crate to DJ, and I got busy. And then we said our name, and they recorded us. Said my name, where I live, what my, rap, my DJ name was. And then I did my little thing, and then I left. And then a week later, I got a call from Carlton Ridenhauer saying, yo, this is Chuck E.D. It was Chuck E.D. at the time. Yo, you know, you won, so you come up to the studio and, you know, let's talk. So the, all the guys that won that contest became the Kings of Pressure. We signed our next Plateau Records. And in the process of working on that stuff, Chuck would give me rides home because I didn't have no whip. And he lived in Roosevelt. I lived in Uniondale. And on the way home one day, he goes, yo, um, we working on an album, man. We wonder if you want to lay some scratches on it. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know. So he puts in a cassette, and I hear the beginning of the song that will later be called My Uzi Weighs a Ton. I'm like, this is kind of dope. He's like, yeah, you got to come in and rock. You know, what do you think? I'm like, hell yeah, why not? A week later, me, Chuck, the Chuck picked me up, and I had a, a crate of records, one 1200, because I didn't have two 1200s. I was too broke to have two at the time. And, uh, and a Newmark mixer, Newmark DM1600 or 1650. And we went up to INS Recording in Manhattan, which isn't there anymore. And we went into a room, and I laid cuts on all the songs for Yo Bum Rush the Show that day. While, and in between doing the cuts, I would sit there and learn how to program drum machines with, with Eric Sadler, with Keith. And then right next door was Duke Booty. And he, I think he was working with Word of Mouth. I'm not sure, but he's working with one of those, one of those groups. So that was my intro to the to the recording industry right there. All of that condensed in the, the real fast thing. What kind of needle did you use? Do you know? Yes, Pickering NPACs. <laughs> Those were the joints. Do you know if Chuck still has the recording of your debut? Uh, probably. Oh, you mean the Kings of Precious there? Oh, I, no, not that. I mean, when you try it out and you won the contest. That's a good question. You know what I'm saying? That's actually, right, that's that's actually a good question. I never asked him, but you know, now that I think about it, because remember, he has Charlie Brown freestyling too. Right, and anybody else too. He's got a whole history right. of whatever. Yeah. You found the tape with um, the extra version of Scenario, right? You yeah. You told people. You yeah. Found, I, okay. Right, cool. I, put up, I got multiple versions. I put two up. I think I heard it. I'm still trying to find a version with Mace on it. I remember, so I remember it was Ryan to this day. Yo, I got pictures of that session. Yeah. Wah, wah, wah. Oh, ha. That's become such a staple. You scratched that, right? Was that you that, that scratched that song? I forget what song it is originally, on here. Originally, you got to hear the original demo. It's, it's, it's hilarious. So Chuck did it originally on a, as a pause button tape. Hmm. So that one, 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 it was all off beat. It was like, it was horrible, but <laughs> it was, but it was beautiful at the same time. Cause it was like, sure, sure. It's a pause. It tape, was, right? it was crazy. So, so, so they came up with that. All we had, all we did was when we did the, 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 the version that you would finally hear, all it was done, it was done with better production, but. That shit was done already, man, back in the day with a pause button. And the funny thing is, like, Keith played the drums underneath the, the, the blow your head, but he didn't even know what the quantize button was. So that shit was all freehanded, you know what I'm saying? So while it right, listen right. to the drums, on the one, it comes back around, but throughout the... Um, Right, the it's loop, a long the drums eight bar throat. loop or something, or is it the whole, you know... Yeah. He's, is he doing the whole, is it a loop? Okay. It's not an SP-1200, but the thing is, the one always comes around. 
even though it's not quantized. Okay. So it starts out on beat, but then it floats all out of beat. And then when it comes back on the one again, it comes on. So if you ever listen to it, it goes. Right. With those high hats. One always comes in perfect. But the other shit is floating so ridiculous, but it matched up with the with the loop of Blow Your Head, which was a live drummer. So yeah. you got to kind of fit it. Well, I'm glad you kind of cleared that up because, you know, when you talk about someone playing the live drums, playing the drum machine live, you know, there's two different ways to look at it. You could look at it as like, I mean, you know, what RZA does obviously is, you know, because I used to use the EPS 16 plus so I can kind of hear what he's doing. He plays everything live without quantizing, but he does it in, eight, he does it in like an eight bar chunk or a 16 bar chunk. Right. You know what I mean, because you can hear it does, as opposed to just rolling the loop, you know. Other people who are who aren't going to go on and do the research, they didn't have a sampler that could play the "Blow Your Head" by uh, James Brown, Maceo. So what they did is they put an actual tape loop around and around the mic stand, etc., to get it to sound right. And then I was thinking he was playing along with it, without actually, you know, I didn't know that he had sequenced any of it. I thought it was just played live into it. But that song with the flavor WAP version is just incredible. Right, they looped the "Blow Your Head," but then the drums were thrown in underneath it. And those were freehanded. But then again, as soon as the one came around, it was recorded. Right. So you didn't have to do it anymore. So it was done in a chunk. You know what I'm saying? Were you moving the tape around to make sure it mixed up? Or did you just, you know, it's one of those things where you just try to get it to sync up, right? It's one of those things. One of those things you try to get it wrong and it worked. So Yeah, <laughs> like Rebel Without a Pause. But, you know, the thing is the original beat for Rebel wasn't the Rebel Without a Pause beat. The original beat for Rebel Without a Pause was the Night of the Living Bass Heads beat. But hmm. Chuck felt they didn't have enough drive because the Night of the Living Bassheads beat is the same record. It's the grunt, but it's a different part of the grunt. So instead of, instead of the the saxophone that's 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 you know slowly you know going through the scale going up, you're getting the 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 sax going uh, dun, 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 and the and the and the right. it was backbeat driven. It wasn't it wasn't you know it. The beat was right. the, the one. The one didn't drive it. It was the backbeat drill. So it was like dun, 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 dun. so it didn't have the drive right. we needed for Rebel. So you know Chuck took and Chuck was the one that thought about taking the beginning of it. And then we got that you know that you know so it just worked. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Just EQ the low end out of it. Do some 808s and some regular drums in it. Took the funky drummer from the snare onward. So instead of just a doom doom tap, you just took the that's that part, and of course the the regular drum programming on that. Was that in the EPS sixteen or the EPS? I remember you telling me how you used to like, you know, for we had um, a Sonic. No, it was a Mirage. We had an Sonic. It was a Mirage, right? Right. But that's so, not what we used for that. We used an Akai okay. rap on a sampler, S nine hundred, and um. It's funny, we had a Korg DDD1 drum machine, right? And the Korg DDD1 drum machine had a little 2.5 second sampler uh, mm. uh, expansion thing on it. And we did a lot of stuff with that, believe it or not. We've talked about this in detail. I mean, one of the things I was going to was gonna do was I was going to say, well, let me just take my old notes from when I first came over to your studio and I asked you like all the questions about each song. I was going to say, let's just go over that again. Maybe we'll do that another time, but... I remember you saying something about how you would do an interesting thing where it was it was it wasn't a chorus effect like speaking of Night of the Living Bass Heads, you know, with those shakers to get that sound. You called it a cross patch or something. I can't remember. You called it. I can't remember what you called it, but you put you put it on two tracks and you panned it left and right. So it wasn't a stereo panning effect, but it had the feel to it. There wasn't any delay in it, but it just had that feel. You know what I mean? We did that a like lot. A, felt like a stereo sample. Okay. Right. We did that a little, not just with things like that. Like sometimes when we had samples where we wanted to get like. Like a lot of people would do this on, on when they when they do in the sampler or on the SV twelve hundred. The SV twelve hundred has a filter on the channel one and on channel eight, and those filters are very very difficult to to emulate. So anytime you hear them real nasty thick ugly eight oh eights, they were they were usually sampled and triggered on channel one of the uh, SV twelve hundred. Channel one had an ugly low pass filter, and then channel eight had a low pass filter, but not exactly the same one. So if you hear like deep, like samples where the where the um, where the highs are taken out, and you don't hear the low stuff. Uh, you right. hear that a lot in Onyx records. Large professor, you know. Right, 
that was the chat. That was channel eight on the SB 1200. So that's how you can tell SB 1200s. So um, when we didn't have that because we were we didn't have the money, what we would do is we would we would cross patch. We would basically make a copy of the of the sample or the track and put it on another track, and then one track would be the regular one, and the other one we'd affect it so that it would have all the the, the highs taken out. So so we could just mute the each track when we wanted the high one to come in and when we wanted the low one to come in. So that, that, that way, you know, and it worked. And then it would probably be a little off, just enough off that it didn't flange. Basically, we would take the output of one channel and put it in the input of another channel <laughs> and we would record it. Okay, okay. So, yeah, so... We so use the technology yeah. right now. Right, right, right. Yeah. Let me ask you to give the definitive answer because a lot of people who aren't in hip hop, you hear them talk about an 808 and they go, oh yeah, what they're doing is they're taking a sine wave and they're gating it, which of course is one technique. And I'm trying to say like, no, like at least in my experience, it was all about trying to find the perfect 808 sound. You know what I mean? I remember my friend Gomi, who's a, who's a house producer, who's uh, produced a lot of Boston hip hop in the, in the late eighties and stuff. Uh, but he worked with and mattress of work. He's going to be a guest on the podcast in, in early May. Oh. He he had this. Yeah, he's a he's a great guy. I met him at Berkeley. He had this 808. I remember the day. I'm, I remember he was playing me some sounds. This one dat, and I heard this 808, and I go, "That's like the holy grail of like 808s." So would you talk about that? Like you know, it's you're saying you were sampling 808s. Like how are you, how are you doing it? You're creating your own ones. You know what I mean? Were you doing anything with where like you know you're using a sine wave and then gating it? We take it off a record. We didn't care. I mean, we had an 808, actually. Okay. I remember we had an 808 drum machine, and, and uh, one was in the garbage. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. I was leaving the studio, and I'm talk when I say the studio, I'm talking about 510 South Franklin Street. That's in Hempstead. That's where we used to always go and do our little pre-production. And one day I was leaving, and the garbage was always in the front. It was a, it was a dental office. Dr. Gant, right? And downstairs was Eric Sadler's side. <laughs> St- stood for Cassius and Sadler. Cash side, cash side, right? Mm-hmm. So they had their little little rehearsal studio and garbage day would be whatever they throw it out. And I was leaving one day. I was about to walk across the street to the Hollywood grocery store and grab a little $1 french fries from the, from the Chinese spot. And I looked in the garbage and on the top was a drum machine. It was an 808 and it was in the garbage. So I took that right. shit home. I fixed it up. I'm like, somebody threw out a drum machine. Are you, are you kidding me? But, um... At that time, you know, we get, get it off a record, you know, you mess with it. I mean, thinking about this, man, Dr. Dre, and I'm talking about MTV Raps, Dr. Dre. Right. Uh, he, um, right, you were saying he, he invented in, it in a certain sense. He invented the sustained 808. Right. Original concept. Right. The Roland 808 drum sound, the Roland 808 in general, was supposed to be an analog version of what... <laughs> Of real drums, and it and it didn't right. sound anything like real drums. So, right. unfortunately, so you know, because of that, yeah, nobody bought it. It was like a, mm-hmm. it was a bust. Nobody bought the drum machine because they thought it sounded nothing like a real drum machine. So, because of that, um, because of that, uh, the price went down. Right. So, since it went down, it became something that a lot of hip hop cats wanted to buy because. All drum machines at the time, like the Lin LM1, which was the first sample-based drum machine, mm-hmm. and the Lin 9000, which was real dope and had sampling. And things were extremely expensive. So was the 808. But once the prices came down, because real musicians were like, this don't sound like no damn drum. Nobody wanted to use it. But leave it to hip-hop cats to say, well, you know, I'll use it. It's cheap. And then it became the staple of hip-hop. Were you sampling the 808s from Can You Feel It? Not that is that where a lot of the songs like like I can hear Rebel without a pause. I can hear that you know boom 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 you know. I but, can't remember you know, where was... we got where we got that actual weight sound from, but I can tell you one thing though. Um, we were um, we were sampling from whatever we could find. First of all, Keith had a lot of records up there, um, and right next to us was this guy named EJ. Right? Yeah, EJ. I was just about to ask you, EJ the DJ. <laughs> right. So EJ the DJ. That was my man. See, they shared a little spot upstairs, right? So EJ yeah. had his his side of the room with all his records and his speakers mm-hmm. and stuff because he did use a mobile DJ. And then on our side, we had the Spectrum stuff. 
So, you know, I'm not going to say that we took any of his records, but I'm saying, you know, <laughs> some of we slid over there and grabbed, but, um, you know, that'll do a lot for his career if you took his records and made it into gold and platinum records. You know, I want to have him on as, an, as a guest, too, you know. Yeah, well, you know, EJ, you know, I love EJ, man. EJ's still my man to this day. Yeah, absolutely. You see those records, you take, we always put them back. We never stole his records. We put them back. I'll tell you that right now. But, um, you know, it was, we, we grabbed whatever we can grab. And it was, that was the good thing about so many people who were having their hands in the pot. It's the good and the bad thing. The good thing is there was a lot of us. So we bought things that we might have necessarily liked and the other guys might not necessarily have liked. You know, Eric Such as? Well, you know, Keith would find some shit that really wouldn't be in tune with whatever the hell Eric was thinking because Eric played played bass and he played instruments. And he was like, that's not in key. And Keith was like, oh, this shit sound dope. I don't give a shit. You know what I'm saying? And then I would scratch something in and he was like, I mean, yo, there's too much shit going on here right now. You know, Eric was trying to be the Eric was trying to be the guy that like kind of made everything fit. And me and Keith were trying to throw the kitchen sink up in that motherfucker. So it was like, no, try this one. And and he was like, oh, yo, listen, there's a transition here. Like transition, transition. Just let me just throw shit up in there. You know what I'm saying? And the good thing is I grew from that. I learned more from Eric. And and I knew better, but I didn't. I was a kid. But, you know, I grew up listening to Southside music, which, you know, Southside music I listened to had great arrangements. Um, uh-huh. you know, it was arrangement based, you know, that's what right. gave you the, the swell of, you know, emotion on certain parts of the record and what have you. So that's always been lacking really in a lot of rap records, the, the swell you would get, and that's, you would really just get when the rapper said something dope, as opposed to the musically it going somewhere. But it's not true. Cause in a lot of the original, like early hip hop, there were arrangements. Right. You know right. what I'm saying? And you listen to some of Larry Smith's productions, shit, you yeah. kidding me? So, you know, that kind of thing happened, but not as much. And we tried to do the same thing, but different. So when you hear Public Enemy records, they're arranged. Not right. necessarily in the chord progressions, you would think. Right. But in lieu of chord progressions, you had uh, stop and goes. You had tempo changes. You had... Total beat changes, you know, you know, you had things like right. that. Yeah. Welcome to the Terror Dome. One thing I can say about your music that is like it was the first time I ever heard a seven eight bar in a rap song, basically because the sympty tape broke when it's going, come on down, boom boom, boom boom, come on down. So you had to kind of repair the tape, right? Yeah, but the thing with with um Terror Dome uh was um Chuck took the um cold sweat and right took it from the one and he triggered it before the one. Oh, okay so it's 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 not it's it's so he goes bent two three four three so it's the four and right right right, right. but he triggers it twice so because it does come back to the one at the bar right right but that's why that's and, and he lets it drag out so he goes bent so he triggers it but he triggers it early on the second one before the one and that's why it has it's it's syncopated and it's not exactly it doesn't sound like the same loop on the second part of the turnaround and it's done on purpose and then of course he took let a woman be a woman let a man be a man drums and threw that underneath that motherfucker and then he threw a psychedelic shack up in that motherfucker and you know it's Right. You know, we can just keep going and going and going and going. So, people need to listen to that because the drum breaks. You know, you could sing them. You know, the, all those little sick man. I mean, you know how how deep I listen to that stuff. I used to listen to that stuff at half speed just so I could keep catch every single riff. Those sixteenth note hi hat or those sixteenth note. That is that Eric doing all that stuff. He does it on. Um, you know, there's a certain feel that he's got that really only he has. It's it's straight sixteenths when he does those fills. But like, there's some on. Yeah, of course. There's some. That's Eric. Some some of them, some of them were done free freehanded though. Yeah, you can. Well, that's a Prince technique, as far as I understand. What he used to do is he he'd program everything but the snare, and then he'd play the snare in live. Eric. Was yeah, well, we did that. We did that. We did Eric that. Was a we big did that on certain fan. Yeah. Right. Eric was a big, actually Eric was going to produce a record that Prince wrote for Eddie Murphy. Mm. 
Eric was supposed to produce Eddie's first single, which is why Eric kind of knew how to use all those machines because Eddie gave him all types of shit and said, here, learn it. You know, hmm. and at the last minute, you know, Eddie's manager said, "Now nah, we got this dude, Rick James, is going to do your shit. You know? So he went over there, part of it. Yeah, but, but um, the, the funny thing is, Eric gets a two-inch reel from Alexander Nevermind, and that's Prince. Right, Prince's pseudonym, right. So, wow. so Eric was about to produce a song for Eddie Murphy that Prince wrote, and he had the two-inch. I was talking, I was just past um, October, I was in Jacksonville visiting some family, my, my daughters, and Eric lives in Jacksonville. So Eric came by, and we were talking about that exact same thing. And he was like, yo, so, yo, man, I had the two-inch Alexander Nevermind who he was about to do an Eddie Murphy record. And that's that's just bananas, man. Well, you can hear it in his bass playing. You know, I'm a bass player since 1984. I mean, I always loved Prince. But, I mean, when you listen to, uh, when you listen to a lot of the instrumentals, there's one instrumental for Black Steel and the Hour of Chaos that's got the live bass. You know, you can hear the live bass, and I'm just like, man, that that guy is just. I mean, your records that. Yeah. Ernie asked Prince, you know, what's your favorite music, and Prince said, my favorite music is Public Enemy because, and he put some on. He was in his studio. He put some on. He says, because every time I listen to it, I can hear another layer. And that's true. Actually, I, I, I approached Chuck about that when I heard that he was putting together the 5.1 versions. And I said, I think I've got a contact high from when I met Flavor Flav. You know, because every time I listened, uh, in like 1990 or something, because every time I listened, listened to Fear of a Black Nation, I hear new layers. Yeah. You know, when they made Three Feet High and Rising, from what I understand, that was the first record that producers consciously said, well, we can use the SPX-90, I think it was the SPX-90, right, to basically put all the samples in key, you know? Yeah, well, I was, curious. Well, I was crazy. Those dudes yeah. are dope. The new project Paz the News has with, um, with Dave, it's called First Serve. Okay, First yeah, Serve. I heard about this, I heard about this. Right, you know, they actually have pseudonyms. So Paz the News is a pop rapper, his name is Pop Life. Jacob Poplife Barrow and Dave is Dean D. Witter. And, um, you know, I guess Positive News plays this pop type rapper and, uh, and Dave plays this street thug rapper. And their album is, um, well, I, I think it's a mixtape. It's called The Goon Time Mixtape, where uh, they kind of, they kind of like, it's the whole premise is they're trying to show how they're getting put on. As a new group, so uh, and it's dope. It's you know, it's not Dela, but it's Dela. Um, I've always said that Dela Soul is my favorite Long Island group. Well, I'm gonna yeah. tell you right now on the real mm -hmm. Dela. I mean, Dela, as dope as they are, there's some dope Long Island groups. We both know this. Long Island sure. changed the face of hip hop. Period. Mm. As you know, everybody talks about the Bronx. The Bronx started it. You know. Queens blew it up and made it worldwide. Brooklyn gave its reality and made it grimy. But mm -hmm. Strong Island changed the face of rap forever. Mm -hmm. From Eric being Rakim to De La Soul to Public Enemy. Mm -hmm. I mean, Wu Tang. I'm a broad, right? Wu I mean, I mean, listen, I, I'm a Bismarcky. I'm you sorry. What am I saying? That's Staten Island. What am I talking about? Uh, sorry. Well, you said Wu-Tang, but you know, you're not far off because Method Man used to live on Long Island. Okay. Prodigy from Mob <laughs> Deep used to live on Long Island. They were from Hempstead. Uh, he lived in Hempstead for a while. And, um, and, and, uh, and he lived in the stead and stuff. So, yeah, even DMC bought a house in Freeport and lived there for a while. So, you know, mm -hmm. Long Island has a, a rich history of cats, but not just people that were dope. People that literally changed everything. Public Enemy changed right. the the landscape of sampling and music production, Absolutely. as well as ushered in the era of of pro black and Afrocentric rap, woke, etc. Right, De La Soul ushered in. Even though Jungle Brothers, you would say, was the first group that ushered in the the, the native tongues, but De La defined the sound. That right. Younger Brothers Done by the Forces of Nature is one of the biggest slept on records in the world. 
Henry Wallen said, the public enemy, what they were doing musically changed everything. And, you know, as a musician, I was at Berkeley at the time. And like, you know, I mean, I'll tell you this, as much as I don't like the press a lot of times, a lot of that, just the writing about public enemy at the time was really inspiring, just the way they'd try to describe the sounds. I was into Coltrane at the time, et cetera. And, and it was just, it was what, it was what everybody was I mean, you know, not to date everything in back, but that golden age of hip hop, like around 1989, 1990, you know, Nelson Mandela was free. You know, I was doing a lot of activism. People were playing. I mean, the first time I met Pete Seeger was at was at a, a women's rights march in Washington D.C. that Chuck and KRS were talking about on a video uh, you can find on YouTube. But everybody was playing. All the white socialists were playing. Don't believe the hype. All the way, all the, all the, with these boom boxes, everybody, it was just a totally political time. Yeah. You know, you just changed everything. The cram concept. The clamp, yeah, clamp, right. Cram, cram concept, you know. Uh, we call it clamp, C-L-A-M-P. Concept. Oh, I thought it was cram. Attitude. Nah, it's clamp. concept, lyrics, attitude, music, and, and uh, performance. Okay, I was talking about the cram sampling when you try to cram everything in. Oh yeah, we did that too. Well, we was um, well, we was up at um, five ten South Franklin, the little studio. We would have what we call our musical night school, right? So every Monday night at eight o'clock, that was that was our meetings. We go there, we meet up, talk about whatever. Chuck would give us assignments. One of the assignments was come back, but not with rhymes, with cadences. With cadences, right? How do you define that? You talking about abstract rhythmic things, or what are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. Flows, rhyme flows, right? So one of them we came back with was the "Give Me the Mic" from the the, the record we did um with um with the Kings of Pressure, right? So the the flow was da 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 da. That was the flow. That was the cadence. So we had different cadences. Um, I, you know, and I know this is weird, and no, no disrespect to my boy Super Lover C, because he was one of the dopest at the time. But that, that, that flow that he had, that was one of the flows that we came up with. You know, the we had that that flow was one of the cadences we came up with, man. Uh, my boy e, Boogie Breeze, he sounded like what now would be described as Smooth B from Nice and Smooth. But he was doing it before there was a smooth beat from Nice and Smooth, at least recorded and released. You know, we had my boy Double D, who had some of the most ridiculous flows I've ever heard. And I've never heard anybody freestyle better than this dude. And um, and that's saying a lot, because I've heard a lot of people freestyle. Unfortunately, he went and did some jail time. But um, he was unbelievably ridiculous on the mic. Uh, and we... Um, we would have different assignments every week, come up with something, you know, find a sample or bring back it is or do that. And and I would always try to come up with different scratches and bring them to the table every time I came back. And then I even rhymed. I rhymed on Give Me the Mic. I rhymed last. So, yeah, I wrote rhymes too and all that. So, you know, it was we, we were trying to get better at what we did, but at the same time, we were trying to outdo our, our peers. So, you know, I wanted to come up with some better shit than the next dude that was there. So, you know, if Double D came with something and Double D was dope, I'm like, nah, son, I got to come up with some. At least I got to come up with something to hang. You know, and it, it, was, it was a good, it was a good um, uh, competitive atmosphere. And I get what they were trying to do. So, you know, I thought it was great, man. I thought I thought it was a, a great environment for learning, opportunity for growth, and um, you know, a little bit of a healthy competition didn't hurt anybody. Yeah. Let me ask you about Chuck at the beginning of Public Enemy. I remember him saying, "We are media manipulators." I remember reading something where Quincy Jones gave him the Marshall McLuhan book. He could kind of key into like him being a sort of a conceptual artist. Well, keep in mind, Public Enemy was. Public Enemy didn't matter to Chuck, really. They they were a two-year right. project, and they okay. wanted to blow up their radio presence. That was their thing. Let's do. Let's try to make you know, because they were radio cats. You know, we all started our radio. You know, I did RHU. Chuck did BAU. You know, and Chuck and these dudes wanted to blow up their their radio show. That was it. Radio was their thing, and they were. That's what they wanted to do. 
they got signed to Def Jam because Bill Stephanie, you know, he was one of the radio cats. The radio station at Adelphi had Bill Stephanie. It had Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre's operating room. Mr. Bill Moe's Chill was Bill Stephanie. Uh, Flav and the Flavatrons. Spectrum City Hour of Power. Um, Rusty J, rest in peace. You know, Wild Man Steve was on there. Um, Baba Bowie from um, from Howard Stern was on there. You know, you know they had they had a serious radio presence up there, man. And when Bill Stephanie bounced and became you know an executive at Dev Jam, they were trying to they were trying to sign Chuck for a minute. Chuck didn't want to get he want to sign. Then right. he's he figured they wanted to create a management group, find groups, put them on, and kind of run shit. That's what they wanted to do, but they didn't really care about recording like that. That was the plan. That's why it was only a two-year plan. Initially, they only wanted to sign Chuck. Chuck made them sign Flav. Nobody else was signed. Terminator wasn't signed as a member of the group. None of the S1s. It was just Chuck and Flav. And, of course, Andre Brown, Dr. Dre was signed as original concept. So you see all these Long Island cats were thrust in there. Uh, We did what we could. And then... Chuck's first idea was to find groups, and one of the groups he tried to find was my group, the Kings of Pressure. Then he he had all these names of groups with, and Chuck since Chuck is a graphic artist, he he drew logos: the Kings of Pressure, Leaders of the New School, Son of Berserk and the Hell Raiders, the Terminal Illness Crew. He had all these crews, and they had ideas for what the crew was going to be. They were finding people to populate these crews. So they tried to populate Leaders of the New School um, with Son of Berserk and the Hell Raiders, and they didn't like it. Son of Berserk, they were called the Townhouse Three. They were a group that preceded Chuck and them. They were a long-time group in, uh, in Long Island, the Freeport. And Chuck, to a certain extent, you know, got a lot of the flavor from T.A., Son of Berserk, the, the lead rapper from Son of Berserk. Right, T.A., the right. DJ. You know, that whole deep voice thing, that was T.A. So when Chuck probably blew up, <laughs> He, he put them on. He made them kind of berserk, featuring no self-control. Leaders of the New School, them and the crew that would become the young black teenagers just fought over the name Leaders of the New School. So they're, the, the way to win that was, you guys go write a song, you come back, and the winner gets the name. Well, you already know who got the name. So YBT was around as a concept, so that could have gone to Leaders of the New School? Didn't have, it wasn't an ironic twist on, you know, they're white, etc.? Well, they weren't called Young Black Teenagers at first. They were act- The first white group that Chuck and I wanted to put out was a group called the, the Terminal Illness Crew. But Rick beat him out with the beat. And then Rick got the second last laugh when he pushed back Public Enemy's first album a year because of the Beastie Boys album being out. So how much the show was put out in 87 even though it was done and ready to roll in 86 because the Beastie Boys album was out, which explains why the, the B-side to a single from the first album is a single from the second album. Rebel Without a Pause is the right. B-side to You're Gonna Get Yours, even though You're Gonna Get Yours is on the first album. Right. That was an amazing time because sampling was starting to get noticed. You know, with Eric B. and Rakim, I think even, you know, Polydor re-released James Brown's In the Jungle Groove, which is still a phenomenal album in itself. Great album. But, um, yeah, which I think you said that you guys actually sampled the bonus beats when you sampled the Funky Drummer, right? So... Yep. I guess when the bonus beats were created, it was made from a loop where it goes back in time. You know, you're in a certain bar. Was they hit. the song Back in Time? Sorry, I got... Amazon Echo just said, would you like to play the song back in time? <laughs> I was wondering what that was. Yeah. yeah. Hear the song back in time. Echo, stop. So don't let me say that E-C-H-O word. Yeah. One, two, three, four. The funky drum. Boom. So what happened is I guess he took the snare after that. The funky drum. One, two, three, four. Hit it. That. So he didn't keep that. Whoever did the edit, I can't remember his name offhand, but he's a famous, he's pretty much the, one of the major editors. So he did that. So he start, he took that two from that one bar, and then the bar, the kick drum for the next one, then he, he flipped it around. So on the bonus beats. Yeah, I was talking to Jack Duck 
uh, Jack Douglas produced Walk This Way for Aerosmith. And he worked on Imagine with John Lennon, right? right. So, yeah. So that's Jack Douglas, Jack Douglas. Right. He told me the story of how they came up with the vocals for Walk This Way, which is a phenomenal story. In any case, Jack was sitting there and he says, you know, um, I voted for you to go into Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'm like, cool. You know, I mean, I just met Jack maybe maybe six months before that. I did a project with him. He's a good, uh, he's a mentor to, to Brian Hardgrove. Oh, okay. You know, I got to sit and talk with him and, and, and learn a lot from him. He's a, you know, phenomenal producer, engineer, you name it. It took him an hour, an hour to get the sound he wanted out of the guitar when we were remaking Walk This Way. He's like, no, that's not it. He spent an hour doing that. Not now. We just recorded, we throw some plugins on it. No, he went through an hour of, of having the guitar tweak his amp and, and his effects until it was like, that's the sound I want. I'm like, Jesus, by the time he already recorded, nobody wants to record. But that that's how serious he was about that. And and uh, but he says, you know, it's not about being the best necessarily. It's about being important. He said public enemy was important. Now there's some dope MCs out there. And you almost, and I say almost, but you almost never hear Chuck being listed as a top five or top ten MC. Which is ridiculous to me. Absolutely. But what he said was true. Public Enemy is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they were good. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they were important. You know, and they were good too, <laughs> but they were important. Mm -hmm. When you do something that's bigger than you, that means something. And Chuck yeah. made songs that were bigger than, I mean, a lot of people don't put him in their top five or whatever because he doesn't rhyme about how good he is. Unless you listen to Time Bomb or Public Enemy Number One, I guess those are the braggadocio raps. Right. But keep in mind, those were made in '86. Well, actually, Chuck really made them. Chuck made Public Enemy Number One in '83. Wow. You know, it was it was, was re-recorded. You know, but you know, and he changed some of the the names. Like we said, Chucky e. D, myself, and KG, Flavor, DJ Melo D. So he said, Flavor, KG, he's talking about Keith. He said, Melo D, he's talking about Terminator. Before that, though, in the original version, he said, Butch Cassidy. You know, my boy, um, my boy is Sensei Aaron Allen, you know, who's now a grandmaster and teaches Kaizo. a martial art. Yeah, Kaizo, right? So, you know, it's weird how that turns out, but, but, Chuck was important. He made people want to go back to school. He made people want to think about things. Absolutely. You know, he, he changed the way people view life. And that's Absolutely. what any great artist is supposed to be. So, mm -hmm. you know, I I think that's that's what's missing probably from today's music. The artists aren't important anymore because they're interchangeable. Mm -hmm. They're 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 uh they're I don't know, they're expendable. You got one artist, he's good, but you know what? If you take little this guy and put young this guy in his place, would it matter? But you can't take Cool G Rap and put Chuck on there and say it's it's gonna be a different it's gonna be a different song. It, it matters, you know. Chuck D can't do on the run. And Cool G Rap can't do Welcome to the Terridome. It is what it is. Yeah. Well, well so much nine one one is a joke. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Let's talk about going into from Nation of Millions. You know, you had the amazing Summer Slammer, which, in my opinion, is probably one of the most underrated pieces of vinyl or CDs or whatever you can find. That that one, that one amazing medley. You know, you got the the Mega Mix, whatever it's called. The, the Enemy Assault Vehicle Mix is just incredible. Oh, yeah. I know some guy in England did it, but whatever it was, the vibe was just perfect because it was all the best of the Nation of Millions stuff. And it came out around the time when when Brothers Gonna Work It Out came out and Flav was in that, you know, the yellow outfit. And, you know, it was just, it was just the, the concept and the visuals of everything were just perfect. Heard a lot about Harry Allen talking about that time too. But what was your involvement around that time going to Fear of a Black Planet before you went into the Army? That was around the time Welcome to the Terror Dome. Let's talk about that that whole summer about going in that, you know? Well, it was the Navy, but it's close enough. I'm uh, sorry. 
the military is what I mean. You know what I'm saying? Right. Well, the thing is, we were, um, we were signed to as the bomb squad. We were in the bomb squad yet. The bomb squad name didn't occur until the end of Fear of a Black Planet, and the name was just made. I, you know, literally to to address certain infighting issues. But um, when we were we were trying, uh, Russell was trying to get us as many gigs for doing production as possible. So anything that was out there, he tried to throw us on it. That's why we did the Slick Rick album, and we, you know, we we did a song for Orange Juice Jones. Mm. I remember it was a, a song called "We Were Friends," and it was basically me, and then I think Chad Jackson or one of those cats from England came. You know, he happened to be in town. He came in to work on it, too. He ended up seeing me there, and he just left. It was like, you know, there's no need for both of us to do this. So we were um, we were sitting there, you know, just waiting for gigs to come our way, and, and Russell was trying to find out a, a way to just make us a part of everything. So when we were working on it, we had we were trying to really come up with a something that kind of make, made us stand out. So we became a master at the cut and edit thing. Radio dude, so and um, me being the DJ focused member of the crew, I would do all types of shit with a turntable and it would find its way in there. When we did, uh, when I did uh, Night of the Living Bassheads, Chuck initially did a whole bunch of scratch drops, so I came in because he had ideas, he just dropped them in and they were like all over the place, they weren't on beat. Shit, I'm like, oh, the Aretha Franklin one was behind the beat, you're saying. Right. Uh, yeah, it was like not rock close. Steady. Yeah, right. I put this together too. Rock instead of rock coming on the one. I put this together too. One rock. I'm like, nah, son. <laughs> so, so I had, I had to like you know I had to really get in there and fix some of those. But then you know on the breakdown, the how low can you go part, you know, right. like, that was just that just made sense, you know. So and then I took Big Daddy Kane's the part the raw when they took the horns for Mama Feel Good and and I froze the turntable and I rewinded it. And then I scratched over that shit. How low can you? And I purposely didn't use the fader a lot because I was pretending I was scratching on the mixer I bought from a crackhead. That was the whole point. It was a crack song. So crackhead right. mixers got faders that bleed. You know what I'm saying? They don't, they don't, you know, they don't, they don't cut off sharp. So that was the whole point to try to scratch and use the, use as little fader as possible. And, you know, and so everything was a concept. So it wasn't just like, we're just doing this to make it sound good. There were reasons behind everything done. And, and the concepts make the song, I think, richer and, 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 and it gives it more texture and context when you, when you hear about it. I mean, some people just thought I was being sloppy when I scratched on that record. I'm like, yeah, but I'm being sloppy on purpose. Right. I wanted you to hear the back cueing. I wanted it to be like, like hey, we're gonna fuck that mixer and try to rewind it and cut the, the fader off. But the fader, when you cut it off, the fucking shit bleeds. You can still hear it. It's like, fuck, this mixer sucks. So I wanted that to sound like that on purpose. And while I did that, you know, some people got it. Some people were like, well, damn, you know, that wasn't, you know, you could have been tighter. I'm like, it was supposed to sound like that. You know, the other records that wasn't supposed to sound like that. That record was supposed to sound like that. If you listen to Terror Dome, Chuck did the scratching on it. That's why the shit's off beat. It's still okay though. Yeah, I mean, it didn't matter because everything was so frenetic that it just kind of seemed to fit. Yeah, but the song was like X song, the flex, hit me now, jiggy 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 thing. That shit was all off beat, and it was kind of what the hell was that? But it, it didn't matter. Yeah, because it was just crazy. Yeah, yeah, the techniques are different now, you know, and. You know, I'll be honest, man, there's like, I call them, you know, the 80s DJs. A lot of them don't do the new scratch techniques. Now they don't, you know, like Cash Money, phenomenal DJ, one of the best ever. Rob Swift uh, rates him as the best DJ, like the GOAT, right? And Cash is dope, but Cash can't do orbits and flares and, and boomerangs and shit like that. You know what? And it doesn't matter. Cash is great at what Cash does. Same thing with Jazzy Jeff. Jazzy Jeff can't do all of that new shit, but it doesn't matter. He's dope at what he does. There's not too many 80s DJs, if, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, you can count them on one hand, that can do the scratches that are done today. 
And does it matter? No. As long as you're musical and you can do what you do, that's fine. But there are certain people that push the envelope. Even the night, there's not even a lot of '90s DJs that do a lot of the shit that people do now. You know, Rob keeps up. Totally, clips are still ridiculous. You know, but as far as scratch technique, I mean, you got cats like Qbert maybe that that always push the envelope. The D Styles and people like that. You know, Babu could still do a lot of that wild shit. But a lot of them, a lot of them cats, they're not gonna. You know, they just. Once they get to the groove, and this is what they do, that's it. I've been a dude that kind of always tries to keep on the bl- the cutting edge of everything. You know, I'm not like the greatest DJ in the world anymore, but I can do all the current stuff because I have to know how to do it just for my own personal reasons. But that doesn't mean I do them all the time. I know how to do them. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I, I figure out how to do them. I do them. I get them to where I'm consistent with them. And then I... I do a Bruce Lee. I take what's useful and I discard what isn't. You know, do I need to be able to do like, you know, you know, multi-click flares and orbits and all more? Not necessarily. I can do them. And when I do use them, I use them because they're required, not because I want to show off. You know, just like some of the scratches on PE's records. I did the scratches on bass heads that way because they were required. I could have did them real dope and sharp stabs and all types of chirps. And I didn't do that because that's not, that's not what was needed on that record. So I come from a different, you know, different, you know, perspective and mindset. When I do a record, I do what's, I scratch, scratch on a record. Even when I produce a record, I do what's best to serve the record. Not necessarily my ego. But theory, just like anything else, only works if you're able to translate what you're feeling uh, into something that makes everybody else feel the same thing. Or gives them some kind of motivation to feel. You know, I've listened to some phenomenal jazz players that are technically proficient with the sterile. Right, right. And and that that definitely comes across in the turntablist world where some people sit there and do these phenomenally technical routines and all these figures. But you don't feel anything. Right. You know what I'm saying? Where's, where's the soul? You know? And there's got to be a way to bridge them. I mean, there's, there's got to be a way to be dope on the cut, technically dope, but still have some kind of funk and soul. You know? And just like, you know, if you listen to some players, like Chick Corea, phenomenally gifted piano player, technically. But some of the stuff, I mean, I love him to death. I can't really listen to. It's not enjoyable. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, it's I dope. And I can't do that shit. But it's like, but, you know. Yeah, they call it Fusac, like Muzak and Fusion. Right. You know? Yeah. You know, but and that's cool. But but you know, same thing with turntablists. I mean, some turntablists, I can't listen to them, man. They, I don't know what the fuck they're doing, man. But it's like, yo, that's great that you could do all that technical shit. But you're not making me want to sit here and listen to that shit. You know, I'm sitting here like, what the fuck, man. You know, no, no disrespect, because you know, and then you know what you get. You know, it gets to the point where some people will be on like, oh, you just hate. Me. I'm like, I'm just hating because that shit is just like annoying. And at what point can you actually not like something and not be called a hater? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Wrapping up on PE, let's talk. Are you going to do this book behind enemy lines? Is a lot of it the same stuff in Don't Rhyme for the Sake of Ritalin? Well, Chuck. Chuck literally gave Russell Myrie everybody's contact information and said, yo, you know, whoever wants to speak to you, go ahead. Um, I was surprised that he gave me a chapter because I remember when the BBC came to Long Island to shoot a documentary on Public Enemy, I was in charge of showing them everything. So I took them to 510. I showed them where we did all our stuff. I took them to BAU and Adelphi. I showed them there. I took them everywhere and showed them all the landmarks where Public Enemy performed when they were at Spectrum City, all of this stuff, and I wasn't even in the documentary. Prophets of Rage one, right? I don't know what it was called. I think it was called. Okay, anyways, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, I wasn't included at all. And yeah, 
it is what it is, especially since who was the person that actually was the subject matter expert that took you everywhere? It was me. You know what I'm saying? But I didn't even get, yeah. I, I, I don't even think I got a shout out. So was I pissed that off? Sucks. Kind of a little bit. Cause I'm like, that's kind of messed up. You know, I, I literally, I literally gave you your story. Yeah. You know, I connected all the dots for you because yeah, you sat down with everybody and talked to them, but I gave you context. I showed you where we performed, where we did our thing. I showed you where everything mm -hmm. was. You wouldn't have had that information without me. You know, Chuck didn't, yeah. have, Chuck didn't have the time to do that. You know, so right. I did, you know, and yeah. Chuck entrusted me. Juice knows where everything's at. He got you. There's a, there's a piece of, of everyone that wants to believe the legend. You understand what I'm saying? Right, right. Yeah. I think I, I forgot where I read that, but there was a famous dude that came in to do an interview and sat there and he did this big interview and it's like about three quarters of the way done. Hold on a second. I'm filling up my water bottle. Yeah, if you want to take a break, too, when you want to take a break, just let me know. That's cool. So three, three quarters of the way through, and then the writer stops and gets up, starts packing up his stuff, and the, the uh, legend that's sitting there being interviewed goes, what are you doing? And the guy said, well, no, our interview's done. He's like, well, I'm not finished telling you the story. He goes, well, I'm not going to write that story. He's like, why not? He goes, people want to people hear about the legend. So that's what I'm going to write about. And they don't want to hear about the truth. They want to hear about the legend. They want to hear about the thing that gave that that they're nostalgic about. You know how many times when people say I did a lot of the, the Terminator X scratches, they get pissed off at me. Right. Why the hell you mad at me? I got fucked just like you think you did. I said, what did you get screwed? Yeah. Really? I thought it was him. What difference does it make? Is it still beautiful to you? Yes. Then you win. You didn't lose because you still had the experience of hearing that. But I lost because I didn't get the experience of people realizing it was me. And I couldn't get work off of that. And I couldn't get anything out of that. So I couldn't capitalize on it. Now I don't really care. I mean, now I'm just happy that people, you know, it, it affected people in such a way. Was that the love you lost? No, the love, the love I lost, which that song had, it's a lot about a lot. It's about yeah. a lot of things that I lost. Wasn't trying to cut you off, you know, just trying to. Yeah. No, no, that's yeah. a good segue. Um, when I did the love I lost, it was about I almost lost my life in the military. Um, uh, I got married and I lost my family when I got divorced. Uh, I lost my health. I got paralyzed from the neck down. I couldn't even move. I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to scratch again. Right. Mm. People say, well, you know, damn, you were pretty dope back in the days. I learned how to scratch and do all of that shit, and then I lost it, and I had to learn it again. So I had to learn how to be dope twice. <laughs> and it was harder the same thing. I think he got it down. down. <laughs> I mean, it was hard, man. I mean, I don't talk about that a lot. but um, and, and, uh, and I credit Rob Swift because... I came out of the military, man. My, you know, my, my body wasn't where it was supposed to be because of what happened to me in the service. And Rob, you know, I met Rob on a chance encounter at Loud Records. They got signed as the executionist. I was right. there with Charlie Brown because we were there to see Pun. You know, with executioner style that session. Um, no, actually, it wasn't a session at all. They would, I was, we were just going up there to meet up with Pun at Loud Records, and the executioners were just leaving. So when they were leaving, I recognized them automatically because since I couldn't really do it, you know, I was trying to get my, my timing back and my, my hands back. Mm -hmm. I was watching a lot of DMC videos. So I recognized all of them. So I was leaving like, oh, shit, X-Men, you know, and they were like, they're executioners then that because of copyright issues. But gave them a pound. Yeah. I'm like, yo, man, I'm a big fan. And they were like, yo, thanks, man, you know, you know, and they were cool. And, and uh, Rob, who was the last person that, that I met before I was going to leave, he goes, yo, man, what's your name? I said, oh, I'm Johnny Juice. And he goes, wait, Johnny Juice Rosado? And I said, yeah. I rhythm rhythm I scratching said, from... Yo. Well, apparently, you know, he said, yo, you mind if I get your number? I gave him my number. We talked for like three hours that night. Mm. It ends up he used to listen to my radio show every night. And I used to be mm. at RSU. And then when I was in the New Music Seminar, DJ Battle, the night before I did a show at Irving Plaza, the Kings of Prussia and PE and all that, and Rob was there. He snuck in with his older brother and um, and uh, Psycho Les from the Beat Nuts because they went to high school together. 
So he said, I followed you around the club the whole night, Juice. It was crazy. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. He's like, yeah, man, I followed you around, seeing who you were talking to. I'm like, why don't you just say what's up? He's like, well, you were Johnny Juice. I'm like, I wasn't Johnny Juice. I was just some motherfucker that's not a DJ. So, you know, we talked for a while, and then I credit him with making me want to go back and get better and better. And, you know, I trained with him a couple of times, and, you know, and he got me back. You know, he motivated me to get back and get my skills back to the current level. And and I did. I got it back. So, you know, give the utmost respect to Rob, man, because Rob, even though we didn't really, like, hang out like that or whatever, you know, he motivated me to be to be that dude. And, you know, that helps, you know. Sometimes when you have that little push. When I was in Long Island, you know, practicing and doing the stuff back in the 80s, I didn't have a DJ crew like the X-Men to push me, to motivate me. Right. So I had to do it by myself. 